Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. The violence Israel, with U.S. support, is currently raining on Palestinians is having horrible effects on human beings, first and foremost, of course, but also on journalistic integrity and humanity. As the president suggests, we need not have confidence in Palestinian accounts of the human toll, and the bombing of a hospital sees reporters presenting U.S. claims as definitive as Israeli forces, with U.S. backing, target journalists themselves, we also see a wave of censorship and repression of dissent that a vital press corps would be resisting loud and clear. Instead, we have media marginalizing critical voices, shortchanging history and human rights law, and the language. Producer Laura Flanders called out the New York Times saying, quote, Gaza's two million residents appeared to be having another communications blackout on Wednesday, close quote, as though they were hosting it. Flanders added, obfuscation in war is no different from lying. And Fair showed TV news avoiding even using the word ceasefire, limiting our ability to talk about how to end the violence. Very difficult days, highlighting core weaknesses in the corporate press. This week on Counterspin, elite media are fond of saying that the U.S. is resetting its Middle East policy. During the 2020 campaign, the New York Times explained, Joe Biden pledged, if elected, to stop coddling Saudi Arabia after the brutal murder of a prominent dissident and Washington Post contributor, Jamal Khashoggi. We are not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them, Biden said. We're going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. So when officials said Biden would visit the kingdom in July of last year and meet with Mohammed bin Salman, understood as the architect of Khashoggi's murder, a New York Times headline explained that Biden had only bad options for bringing down oil prices. We talked at the time with Raed Jarrar, advocacy director at Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, an organization founded by Khashoggi. We'll hear that conversation again today. Also on the show, if you're not careful, Malcolm X famously warned, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. This is a problem of longstanding, of course, and in June 2021, we explored one case of it, the 1921 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with author and activist Joseph Torres. We'll hear that today as well. That's coming up on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. When Joe Biden went back on a campaign promise to isolate Saudi Arabia, announcing a state visit in June of 2022, Vox explained at some length that this reflected tensions in his foreign policy. He wants to benefit the middle class, like trying to lower gas prices, but he wants policy to center human rights. That's a reflection, Vox said, of Biden's gut feeling about democracies delivering better for people. Foreign policy reporting is rife with this sort of thing, asking us to believe in values that are not in evidence, principles that are overthrown at the first turn, and above all, something called realism that somehow always punches down. 
Counterspin spoke with Raya Jarrar, Advocacy Director at Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, a group started by former Washington Post contributor Jamal Khashoggi. I noted that while Khashoggi came up in almost all of the coverage of the trip, there was a sense that Saudi leadership had done one very bad thing, and maybe we should all just get past it. That is a very misguided analysis. Obviously, the Saudi government and many other governments in the Middle East, Egypt, Israel, uh, the United Arab Emirates, and others, have been committing uh, human rights abuses on a daily basis. Uh, And the Biden administration made big, grand promises before uh, President Biden came into office. Uh, But regardless of these promises, what the administration is doing now is that it is breaching U.S. and international law by continuing to support and aid these abusive and apartheid governments in the Middle East. And unfortunately, we're just hearing a new set of excuses to justify the same old policy. Well, yeah, because people are going to read stories saying this visit is a bad idea or it's a good idea or it's a bad thing, but we have to do it. What we're not seeing is discussion of what might be the real purposes or the likely outcomes of this trip. And I wonder what you make of that and of the sort of scramble to present it as a necessary reset in terms of U.S.-Saudi policy. I wish there was a reset in U.S. Saudi policy, uh, it is uh, more or less the same for the last decade. The U.S. policy in the Middle East in general uh, has been on autopilot for decades. And many think tanks and human rights organizations in Washington, D.C. have been pleading that this administration should change the status quo and should rethink the U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. Whether it's the $3.8 billion that we give to Israel every year, whether it's the $1.3 billion that we give to Egypt every year, whether it's the hundreds of billions of dollars of weapon sales to Saudi Arabia and Emirates, uh, these are uh, entrenched practices and policies that have been taking place for a long time. They are so deeply rooted in Washington, D.C., protected by special interests and lobbyists. And uh, all of the reasons why D.C. is broken. (laughs) So the fact that the administration is continuing the exact same policy now, uh, the administration is telling us that it's, you know, it's it's for our own good or it's for the, like, real politique, uh, just to be, uh, you know, uh, reasonable and realistic that we have to go down the path of funding apartheid in Israel and selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and doing all of these crimes, uh, supporting all of these crimes in the region. It's not true. That's actually not true. The United States does have an option to uh, stop these policies, shift our policies in the Middle East and elsewhere, uh, and start abiding by our own law. We have existing U.S. law that prohibits the United States from funding and aiding and selling weapons to human rights abusers. We have other options when it comes to energy. We don't have to actually have our president fly and shake the hands of the mastermind of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi to bring us oil. That's that's not true. There are so many other options for energy independence. There are many other options for the reduction of use of energy in the U.S. There are options for getting other types of energy. 
There are options of getting oil from other places. There are so many options that these narratives that we're dealing with now are fake narratives, lazy narratives to justify the status quo. Because changing the status quo in D.C. is not easy. Absolutely. Well, and part of what presents an obstacle is this kind of misinformation or even disinformation that comes from the media. I mean, I'm just looking at... And from politicians, you know, media sort of credulously repeating Biden's quote, well, I'm not going to change my view on human rights, but as president of the United States, my job is to bring peace if I can, and that's what I'm going to try to do. Um, You know, going back to the Bloomberg editors, they say healthy U.S.-Saudi ties are critical to calming a volatile part of the world. So I think even well-meaning folks are reading that and thinking, Okay, well, shaking hands with someone, if that's going to calm volatility and if that's going to bring peace, well, then I'm for that. And yet (laughs) distinguishing that from actual diplomacy is is something else again. That's right. And and listen, I grew up in the the Arab world. I am half Palestinian and half Iraqi. I grew up in different parts of of the Arab world, in in Iraq and and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and uh, other, other countries. And I'm very familiar with the narrative of trying to use Israel-Palestine and peace for Israel-Palestine as a justification to continue abusive government policy. This is how we grew up. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein always told us that we have to not criticize the Iraqi government because he is working to bring peace and end the occupation of of Palestine. Assad says the same and uh, Mubarak says the same and all of these Arab dictators and now we are hearing, ironically, a similar narrative coming from the United States. So President Biden is telling us that to bring, quote-unquote, peace to Israel-Palestine, he needs to travel to the region and uh, normalize relationships with dictators, normalize relationships with apartheid regimes. And that is not true. Uh, the United States' role in Israel-Palestine is a part of the problem. And there is no war between Saudi Arabia and Israel <laughs> that President Biden has to go there and negotiate an end or a peace treaty for. What President Biden is doing is, is he's continuing a negative U.S. role in the region, a negative uh, U.S. role that has contributed a longer apartheid in Israel to additional human rights abuse in Saudi Arabia and the region. Uh, and his visit will not help peace. It will not help human rights. It will not help U.S. interests in the region. It will help maintain the very narrowly defined special interests that we have here in Washington, D.C., whether they are the oil lobbyists or the weapon lobbyists or Israel lobbyists or Saudi Arabia lobbyists, very, very narrowly defined interests that come from very, very, very small groups. Those are the people who are benefiting from this. The United States as a country is not, the U.S. people are not, and people in the Middle East region are not. That was Raed Jarrar from Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now, speaking with Counterspin last June. We know that journalism has the power to shape our knowledge of history, which shapes our understanding of the present and the future. When it comes to events like the 1921 massacre of black residents of Tulsa, Oklahoma, we hear a lot about it being little-known history. But there's a difference between what is little-known and what is erased. 
In June of 2021, we heard about Tulsa from Joseph Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author with Juan Gonzalez of the crucial book, News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race in the American Media. We're going to hear that conversation again now, starting with my introduction. The night just passed of May 31st into June 1st marks a deeply painful anniversary in the lives of black Americans. Listeners will have heard, some for the first time, of the 1921 massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma, 18 hours of terrible violence in which at least 300 women, men, and children were murdered. Their killings sparked by a newspaper article about a 19-year-old black shoeshiner, Dick Rowland, falsely accused of assaulting a 17-year-old white girl, but kindled by the white supremacy endemic in U.S. society and culture. Businesses, churches, doctor's offices, and groceries in the area known as Black Wall Street or Little Africa were destroyed, along with the homes of more than 10,000 black Tulsans. Afterward, papers like the Tulsa World explained things in ideas listeners will recognize, even if the language is outré. Mayor T.D. Evans was quoted Quoted, let the blame for this Negro uprising lie right where it belongs, on those armed Negroes and their followers who started this trouble and who instigated it. And any persons who seek to put half the blame on the white people are wrong and should be told so in no uncertain language. The newspaper called on the innocent, hardworking, colored element of Tulsa to cooperate fully and with vast enthusiasm with officials and band themselves together for their own protection against this element of non-working, worthless Negroes. And yeah, there's a lot more. So who decides what we know about Tulsa and what we retain of what we're supposedly learning now and then how that changes anything. We're joined now by Joseph Torres, Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author with Juan Gonzalez of the crucial book, News for All the People, The Epic Story of Race and the American Media. He joins us now by phone from Maryland. Welcome back to Counterspin, Joe Torres. Thank you, Janine. Thank you for having me. Well, listeners will feel the thud of recognition to hear that after the massacre in Tulsa, in which 300 overwhelmingly black people were killed and some 800 shot or wounded, the headline of the Tulsa world was, Two Whites Dead in Race Riot. The story of Tulsa, of Greenwood, then as now, is importantly a story about media about what newspapers told people and they believed at the time, and then afterward, what folks were told to remember and told to forget. You wrote about it recently for Free Press, and I would refer listeners to that piece. But talk a little, if you would, about the role of journalism in the Tulsa massacre. Well, the role of, of the, the two main daily papers, the Tulsa World, which was the morning paper and the Tulsa Tribune afternoon paper, were critical 
the Tulsa Tribune, for example, in the so-called light that sparked the massacre, but in the initial days afterwards as well, and, and going forward in the cover-up, making sure the story is basically forgotten in our society. So the Tulsa Tribune was owned by a publisher named Richard Lloyd-Jones, and in his book about the Tulsa massacre, called when we think about white power structures in our society, when we think about hierarchies and white racial hierarchies in the society, the media companies are a part of that system, always have been. And this was a case in point. So the paper is very sympathetic, the Tulsa Tribune to the KKK, basically prints an advertisement about the KKK plans to come into Oklahoma. And then it focuses its coverage more so in May on issues of crime and criminality. They normally ignored black folks in Tulsa unless it dealt with crime. Mm -hmm. But they started focusing more on a campaign of like black lawlessness in Greenwood, the Greenwood district. But the night, uh, as you mentioned in the intro, the May 31st headline of the false attack of Vic Rowland on a, a white teenage girl lights the spark that results in a white mob heading down to the courthouse to demand that Rowland be handed over to him and, and basically lynched. Mm-hmm. There's an editorial that many believe was actually published in that paper as well that was predicting a lynching that night. But that editorial, and years later, and also that front-page story about the alleged rape, disappeared from the microfilm when they were to recorded the paper for historical purposes. But eyewitnesses and folks who were alive at the time remember that editorial. Right. So the idea that there was this daily news story that was very sensational in its details of this alleged rape, and then predicting the lynching that night, with the match, thousands of white folks actually going to the courthouse. And the massacre itself, thousands of white people invaded Greenwood and torched the whole place. And then following that, the Tulsa world, which is still in existence today, is still a daily paper in Tulsa. All this language, all papers are saying bad N-word. You know, we got right. to get rid of these bad N-words in their community, right? Right. It was a purposeful attempt to blame black folks because what happened as well, the last important detail is that there was never a person who was lynched in Tulsa, I believe it was black to that point. And so... So black residents grabbed their arms, a lot of them were former World War I veterans, and they went down to the courthouse and asked the police if they needed help to protect the Rowland from being lynched. They were declined twice. And so the newspapers blamed black folks who brought their guns to try to protect someone from being lynched as the agitators of this. And that's how they framed it. It was the black community that was the reason this happened, and it brought great shame on Tulsa. Now the Tulsa white community was responding in kind and trying to rebuild, and black folks need to be very appreciative of this effort and get rid of, as you were mentioning, those leaders that they followed. And a lot of these leaders, including two black newspapers, were burned down, too, as well. The Tulsa Star and Oklahoma Sun. A.J. Smitherman was a very prominent member of the black community in Tulsa, a very powerful person and he eventually, uh, he fled the state because he was actually charged. The black folks in the community were charged for instigating the massacre. And A.J. Smithman actually settled down and he left the state and he printed papers in Buffalo, New York, where he died. 
Well, you know, you talk about the erasing of the incendiary editorial, and there's been a kind of general erasure of what happened in Tulsa. It's kind of strange to hear folks saying the little known, you know, this invisible history. And I think, well, you know, I know a lot of black people who've been knowing about Tulsa, you know, but it's true that it is more widely speaking or among white people, it is hidden history. And that has something to do with media, too. I mean, there's just been a lot of silence around this story. Yeah, it was an intentional campaign. The Tulsa Tribune, which no longer exists, didn't mention the massacre until 50 years later. There was efforts to to cover it up. There was this white reporter back in 1971 who was asked ironically by the Tulsa Chamber of Commerce to write something and commemorate what happened on the 50th anniversary. He started researching this story and he started getting basically threatened by strangers that would approach him on the street and tell them not to write the story, calls to his house. Someone wrote on his car windshield with a bar of soap, better look under your hood, I believe it was written, right? Wow. One of the things he stated in interviews is that there were still people who are alive who might be very prominent members of the community who actually took part in the massacre. And if you just think about it, the children of those folks who, because thousands of people literally took part in this massacre, the everyday folks in Tulsa, and the police deputized. Meanwhile, they declined black folks from trying to protect Dick Rowland, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they deputized white folks to go into Greenwood, set the place on fire, which you did, and then they put thousands of black folks in concentration camps for following that. They just rounded up everybody. And so a lot of these folks children still may be alive as well, and grandchildren. So there's, you can see how a cover-up happens, right? Because it implicates the powers that be in the city are going to be totally implicated. And for the newspaper, obviously, they played a role. They played a role in it. As a matter of fact, when the publisher died, there was no mention of it in the paper at all when he died of their own paper, like his role in the Tulsa massacre. So I, I just want to come back to that question of bringing it into the present, because, okay, right now, there's stories on stories on this, you know? Some are folks like Deneen Brown, who's been on it for decades, right? And then, okay, here's the Wall Street Journal talking about multi-generational reverberations on family wealth in Tulsa. Here's USA Today talking about how, oh, you know, it's not just Tulsa. Racist mobs, that's their language, have been a widespread and constant concern. We've got TV projects with LeBron James. We've got curricula. Mm-hmm. All right, so everybody who is invested in wanting this country to change knows that you take your shot when there's an opening. You know, we need understanding all the time, but you take your shot where there's an opening. But right now, it seems like we're saying... Look at Tulsa. It's an example of the depth and the breadth of the hatred, of the intergenerational harm, of the lie and of the silencing and gaslighting and censoring. And I fear that what some folks are taking via the media is Tulsa. What a crazy, exceptional episode in U.S. history. You know, thank goodness we aren't like that anymore. It matters not just to tell the story, but to show that it's not just 
story, you know? Um, And and so I'm just wondering, like, I'm not negative on it. I appreciate the attention. I appreciate the spotlight. My question is, like, what's going to be left behind when media move away, when they're not talking about Watchmen, when they move away from the story of Tulsa? What's going to be the sediment? What's going to be learned from it? Yeah, that's the thing. I feel privileged and honored to be able to work on a project called Media 2070 that the Black Hawkers at Free Press created that's calling for media reparations for the Black community. And the thing, a part of reparations is reconciling and repair. For us, for myself, speaking for myself, you know, the idea that we have to address narrative in the history of anti-Black racism in, in the media system and narrative, narrative that's been intentionally weaponized in order to further white racial hierarchies in society. When we think about the federal government now, when we think about broadcasting, we think about broadband, it's been a policy of exclusion. It's been a policy of excluding black folks and other communities of color from ownership of our nation's infrastructure. Powerful institutions have been created by using our public airwaves, by the roads that we dig up and, and, and the broadband that we lay underneath the ground and that our rights away have been used to generate great wealth and cause great harm to our communities by the stories that these institutions tell. We've been speaking with Joseph Torres. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Engagement at the group Free Press and co-author of the Necessary book, News for All the People. His piece on Tulsa is up on freepress.net. Joe Torres, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. That was Joseph Torres speaking with Counterspin in June of 2021. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to show support for Counterspin if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.